five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, my guest is Daniel Faber, co-founder and CEO of Orbit Fab, a startup looking to set up gas stations in orbit. They've already completed a technology demonstration on the International Space Station, they've raised some money, and they're trying to make the concept of fuel depots in space a reality. Supporting this podcast and a new advertiser to the space economy is Circo Canada. With 40 years experience in the space sector, Circo offers a full range of operational and engineering services. Through long-standing partnerships like the one Circo enjoys with the European Space Agency, Circo contributes to programs like Copernicus and Onda, supporting open data and user experience. With best-in-class capabilities in Earth observation, Circo offers a wide range of space and ground support from data capture to data handling to data exploitation. For more information on Circo's space capabilities, visit circo.com backslash na backslash Canada. If your organization would like to support this podcast, please contact us through our website or email at podcast at spaceq.ca. Okay, now on to my conversation with Daniel Faber. Welcome, Daniel, to the Space Economy Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Now, we've known each other for a while, and you've done a few businesses that I've followed over time. Um, you started a new one called Orbit Fab. Um, your tagline is gas stations in orbit. I love it. The idea of propellant depots to refuel spacecraft has been around a long time. You started a few space companies in your time, including Deep Space Industries, which you left before the company was sold. Why did you choose this idea for your next business? Yeah, if, uh, if we go right back to, to when I was in high school uh, and when I got to university, I, I decided that I wanted to do something interesting for humanity. And uh, because I can integrate, I realized that the most useful thing to do would be work on existential risks. So I, uh, I set about working on uh, a business area that I thought could justify the cost of keeping humans alive in orbit. Um, I had a very short list of industries at the beginning, but asteroid mining was, was one of two things. Tourism was the other one I could see back then. Uh, so I've, I've worked on things that, that have sort of had me in the direction of technologies and business models for asteroid mining. That's what got me started. Um, after building a bunch of satellites uh, in Canada, Europe, around the world, uh, I then started building companies like you mentioned. And, and at Deep Space Industries, while we had the big, hairy, audacious goal of asteroid mining, what we actually built was a small thruster that could move satellites around in orbit that ran on water. Now, strategically, one day we could dig water out of an asteroid or the moon and provide that. But from a business perspective, it was about building a customer, that, uh, building a product that solved our customers' problems. And so it was a small thruster to move satellites around. That saw enough commercial success. Um, and, and Deep Space was acquired by Bradford, a, a thruster manufacturer. You can see OrbitFab, perhaps, as step two in that strategy. Now I want to make the propellant supply chain in orbit. So one day, maybe, step 12 is, uh, is asteroid mining. But this is a this is a long process, and there's a lot of successful companies that we can build in the in the meantime 
that, that will solve significant problems, be able to generate enough revenue, making it interesting for investors to put up the capital so that we can uh, we can chip away at this problem. Um, after I, I left Deep Space Industries, um, I spent about a year looking at different business models, things that, that were related, things that, that would continue moving in that direction, which is my personal interest, but also trying to find out what would nail the real next problem in the industry. And so with the thruster that we had at Deep Space Industries, the, the problem was it was a very cheap thruster. It was, was very low cost, but it wasn't the highest fuel efficiency. And so the trade-off with having to take extra fuel. And we identified that there's got to be a better way to solve that problem. When we talked to people that were using fuel and designing spacecraft and operating spacecraft, there were quite a few of them that said they would see a huge amount of benefit if they could have extra fuel at the end of their life or to recover their satellite. In fact, there are a few of them that said that they'd see over a million dollars worth of marginal revenue for every kilogram of propellant. Now, we know that we could do some good deals with launch companies and get the few propellant to orbit for, for two or, or maybe even more orders of magnitude less than the, than the marginal um, revenue that could be created off, off having that propellant. That's what really sent us in that direction. It was after a couple of those calls that we dropped all of the other ideas we were looking at and said, let's let's double down on orbit fab. Let's let's build the propellant supply chain. Now, uh, on orbit servicing, and uh, in your case, uh, providing a fuel depot propellant, um, it's very much in its infancy, and it's going to take some time um, to get to the point to of being able to service spacecraft in orbit with propellant, you need to develop some new technology that works with a variety of spacecraft and different fuel needs. Tell us about uh, the technology development that you've done to date. Yeah, we uh, we tried to build a satellite fuel tanker, a propellant depot in orbit, and we failed when we, when we started the company. We failed because we couldn't buy a fueling port. Uh, there, there were no fueling ports commercially available that could be refueled in orbit. And so we became a gas cap company. We, we talked to uh, 20 or 30 companies and, and a few government agencies here in the US about what they would need to see in a, in a fuel import on orbit and uh, and then proceeded you know, to, to build to those requirements. Uh, and so that got us past the first hurdle. The second thing then that we ran into, because we still weren't able to build uh, a fuel tanker, the second problem was what is the interface for rendezvous and docking? There's no standard published interface where if you take a camera with X resolution, if you carry a few dishes like QR codes, um, if you carry the right LIDAR, like what is the specification that you need? No one had published that. And so we had to do a lot of analysis to make sure that we could rendezvous, dock, link up the fueling ports to be able to transfer fuel. We've ended up defining that kit uh, of equipment and that interface. And so we're going to be offering those as well. So our self-driving satellite kit uh, is our, our second product, if you like. Uh, and that's finally then uh, let us move to the point where we will be launching the world's first satellite propellant depot uh, in the middle of next year. You mentioned a, a very critical word in there, which is standards. And there haven't been any, I mean, standards in terms of, you know, one company will build its bus this way, another company will build its bus that way. You know, there's no set standard for an interface. And a lot of companies are struggling, a lot of companies like yours that are interested in on-orbit servicing are struggling with uh, this type of issue. And I understand that, you know, you're looking to the future. So 
are there going to be some standards out there that everybody or not everybody but segments that will agree on and so it make it easier for you to design something that to interface with the different satellites that are out there oh inevitably there will be um and I think it's incorrect to say that there aren't standards. There are lots of standards. Um, you can go look up MIL standards for testing satellites and uh, um, launching satellites and things like that. There are no standards for um, docking spacecraft together yet. There are no standards for the fueling ports. Um, and so there are still aspects as capabilities in, um, increase and the kind of things that we're doing and the satellite servicing companies are doing. There'll be standards that evolve and best practices. Um, my co-founder, uh, Jeremy Scheel, is also the co-chair of CONFERS, uh, which is an industry association working to standardize and establish best practices for uh, satellite servicing. And so we're actively in the middle of those discussions of what that should look like. But uh, we looked a lot at, at how standards evolve over time, um, how they, they get uh, accepted across the industry. Um, there's, there's a number of cases, and software is a, is a good example, a number of cases where software was mandated from on high as to what a standard should be. But very few people program in ADA. There's a reason that C is the de facto standard in the industry and, and C++ and Java. Um, and that's because they work. Um, because they get adopted and they, uh, and they work and people like to use them and they solve a problem that people have. Until those types of things are developed, like until you've tried things out and found out what makes something convenient or inconvenient, what reduces the friction of, of doing business, until you've figured those things out, you're never quite sure what the standard should be. So there's a trade-off between wanting a standard but not being able to preempt actual experience in orbit. Uh, so we've got, to, we've got to navigate that, and that's what the industry is doing right now. Uh, organizations like Confers are, are trying to help with that. But everyone's, everyone sort of agreed, we need more work, we need more practical experience with this before we can establish those standards. Right. Now, um, uh, you've already had an experiment on orbit. Um, why don't you fill us in on what you did uh, with uh, on the ISS? Because that sounds uh, fascinating. That was the uh, FURFI experiment. Yeah, that's right. The, the FURFI mission was uh, was our first test on orbit. When we when we founded the company, um, we had a, an idea for doing a test on orbit of our systems, uh, of course, as, as quickly as, as we could. But uh, the International Space Station National Lab actually presented us with an opportunity. They, uh, they helped to do science and commercialization on the International Space Station. And so we had a bunch of science questions that we were looking at, you know, momentum dynamics of a, of a tank full of propellant because our, our spacecraft are going to be just large tanks uh, and we need to make sure we can point them. Uh, we need to make sure our pumps and everything were going to work. So um, we went from a napkin sketch of, uh, of an experiment to test those sorts of things to handing over flight hardware to NASA in four and a half months. Um, it was a, a program that NASA thought would have taken uh, 18 to 24 months because of the, the hazard levels uh, of having fluids on orbit. So we, we had to move through all of you know, the, the human-rated safety level um, hazard assessments at, at the highest hazard levels because of, uh, of the danger of having water. Uh, we used water as the test fluid, uh, of having water free on the, on the station, space station and what that could do. So uh, 
that was a that was a, a bit of a Herculean effort by the engineering team to get that done. Uh, that was quite successful. We learned a lot. We were able to to pump the water across successfully, and it actually uh, concluded that experiment by hooking up our tank to the International Space Station. Uh, we transferred the water. We became the first private company to resupply the International Space Station with water, and uh, and that has really established for NASA that there are other methods beyond their standard procurement methods where they buy a launch vehicle, uh, but there might be other supply chains that they could tap into for these types of commodities at the space station and, uh, and other users, other commercial space stations uh, and the like then have been very interested in that uh, as well. Uh, any plans to do anything more with the ISS? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things that we'd like to test you know, low Earth orbit, um, radiation, plasma, atomic oxygen environment, vacuum, those kinds of things. The, uh, the platforms on the outside of the ISS are really good for that. Um, the zero gravity dynamics and things you can test inside the space station, which is always nice because an astronaut can poke it and fix it uh, if you do find anything that, uh, that goes wrong. Um, so we're looking at flying uh, additional technologies uh, to be tested on the space station. But we had to focus for our next flight on uh, really building the first operational fuel tanker. That's what our customers wanted to see. Um, that's the, the next big step. Uh, and also, you know, we're getting interest in people to, uh, to actually get fuel. So the, the next thing that we will fly will be that, uh, that first fuel tanker. Now that first fuel tanker you're talking about, is that Rafti, your experiment? So Rafti is the rapidly attachable fluid transfer interface. Yeah. That's our fueling port. So our tanker will have that fueling port on there, of course. Um, it will also have uh, some of the elements of our uh, rendezvous and docking system, which we've called uh, SPARC, the Smart Proximity Operations and Rendezvous Kit. Uh, we'll be testing some of the elements of that on the uh, on the tanker as well. But the primary purpose of the tanker is to be a tanker. It's uh, a large tank of fuel. Right. So the tanker is the Tanker 001 Tenzing, if I, if I got that right? That's right. Yeah, we called it Tenzing, uh, who, of course... Uh, <coughs> First man to the to the top of Everest with uh, uh, with Edmund Hillary. Um, they used bottled oxygen to uh, to climb Everest. Uh, we thought that was rather apt. Um, also, it's uh, it's being launched with space flight on their Sherpa vehicle. Um, so naming it Tenzing seemed like a great idea. There you go. Now I see the the tie-in with uh, with space flight there. Uh, and when's that going to fly? Uh, June, July next year, scheduled uh, middle of next year. And that's on uh, a space flight rideshare with uh, SpaceX on their Falcon 9. Yeah, that's right. Now, um, I, I read somewhere about uh, you also have Astro Digital involved in this, and, and you're also going to be using the Cyan Systems thrusters. Is that correct? Uh, so we have we have some elements of this provided by uh, by Astro Digital uh, Axion also testing some systems on this flight. Um, yeah, not sure how much I can uh, I can say about the uh, the technical details of uh, of other companies' work. I ask, I don't always get the answer. But anyway, no, that's fine. <laughs> Welcome to that. Exactly. Um, can you give me a sense uh, of the size of this uh, tanker? Yeah, it's it's pretty modest. It's a minimum viable product uh, in terms of uh, of a tank of fuel, um, but uh, it's a small microsat. And what orbits are going to be in? It'll be low Earth orbit, sun sync, sun synchronous, sun sync, altitude. Uh, 
it's in the five to 600 kilometer range. We don't want it too high. Um, you know, make sure if, uh, if there's any failures, it deorbits in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, if there's any glitches with the electronics, um, but high enough that it lasts long enough that, uh, you know, it's available for our customers need it in, in you know, four or five years time. Can you give us some details on, on what's going to happen when it gets on orbit? Yeah, so there's uh, there's some things, of course, that we're testing out. We want to monitor the uh, the pressures and the seals, the performance of the uh, of the valve um, uh, and such things in the in the rafty fueling port. Um, we also have some uh, some operations that we want to automate. The best way to do that is to have the systems on orbit, where we can see the performance of the of the sensors and actuators, and uh, and be able to to work on automation software after it's launched. So uh, so that's a big part of it. But then really, it's it's lifetime testing. How does this thing handle the uh, the space environment over time? And then, of course, uh, in the future, in the, the very near future, we intend to do an end to end fuel sale trial. So uh, we'd like to get the fuel out of that tank into another another spacecraft's tanks where it can be used for a high delta V maneuver. So after some uh, initial testing, at some point, this particular tanker will actually uh, perform a test uh, refueling another satellite. That's exactly right. That is the intention. So we're we're taking orders for propellant for a uh, 2022 delivery onwards. With this particular tanker. This particular tanker, uh, there could be some propellant available for that. We're also intending to launch more tankers, of course. Yes. And what fuel are, are, are you going to be carrying on this tanker? Glad you asked. Watch this space. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, tell me about your Air Force contract. Um, we've had a few Air Force contracts. Uh, Air Force very interested. Okay. Um, of course, Space Force uh, now a lot of that has transitioned to. Um, the U.S. is talking about space as a contested environment, and so um, they see a propellant supply could be an integral part of, of their activities, and uh, and so they've been supporting a lot of the development that we're doing. They want to make sure that it's all tested and certified to their standards and compatible with their systems, and uh, and that's the work that they're paying us to do is to to ensure that that it can work for them and what they need. And presumably, or maybe not presumably, uh, this would be some uh, Air Force satellites uh, in LEO, or could it be in other orbits? You can imagine there's there's some things there I can't talk about, but uh, any orbits that the Air Force is operating in and the Space Force is operating in, they're interested in this capability. All right. Um, How big is the addressable market? There's a number of ways to look at this market. Let me start with the simplest one. Every year, $6 billion is spent launching stuff into space. 50% of everything that launched is fuel. That means that we spend $3 billion every year launching fuel to space. That's where we can start looking at our addressable market. Now, that doesn't take into account the fact that spacecraft are constrained right now by that fuel. You design operations around using as little fuel as possible. So you don't have the business model flexibility to, to move your spacecraft to service a different market uh, or, or to make them cooperate in ways that weren't intended before launch. You have to buy all of that fuel upfront. It's 100% CapEx. You pay for the fuel, you pay for the launch. And if you don't end up needing it, you're, you're stuck having sunk that money. If you needed more, you're stuck not having more. So freedom from, um, from those constraints, business model flexibility, moving CapEx to OpEx, those things are incredibly important for our customers. 
And then, of course, once you have this capability, just the ability to, to do things that haven't been considered before, um, extending the life of satellites uh, considerably longer after they've been uh, launched or launching them without fuel and then fueling them on orbit means you can get much better mass capacity in terms of actual revenue generating transponders and, uh, and imaging equipment onto a launch vehicle and then pick up the fuel on orbit to, uh, to be able to do things with it. So there's a lot of things that, that provide value that are not included in that, um, uh, in that uh, $3 billion uh, total addressable market number that I, that I used. Now, there's a lot of companies that are planning on putting up constellations of satellites in, in low Earth orbit. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, as little as 10 satellites. Some of them, like SpaceX, in the tens of thousands. Um, and part of their business model at this point is to every X number of years uh, on a shorter time span because they're in Leo orbit to deorbit those satellites and just put in a new satellite. That's an expensive endeavor. So um, is your product uh, something that would be of interest to companies uh, like these? And have you had any discussions with any of these substantial Leo constellation companies out there? Yeah, of course we have, and, uh, and yes, yeah, definitely of interest. And it's easy to see what the business case is for the larger assets. Um, you can you can think about extending their life and uh, you know recovering them if there's a, a launch glitch and they need to be moved into the right orbit. That's obvious to people. When you look at the the smaller constellations that uh, that have a shorter refresh, it's less obvious. But the use cases are, are very clear when you think about it. Um, for the first case, if you if you put up 10,000 satellites, the average failure rates are 1% per year. 1% of all operational satellites fail every year just because their electronics glitch out and you can't go up and fix them. Um, that means that in a constellation of 10,000 satellites, you've got 100 pieces of debris being created in the middle of your operational constellation every single year. And now if they're left there and there's a collision between them, then you've got real problems because that's now thousands of pieces of debris. So even before you think about environmental responsibility and the sustainability of this industry, just the sustainability of someone's business model by threatening their own operational orbit when they're, when they're running that many spacecraft, is, uh, it's rather terrifying to think about. So we need active debris removal to make sure that we don't clutter up space and uh, you know, deny access to, to all future generations because we fill it with debris. So the active debris removal, uh, you know, a tow truck or a garbage collection system in space, you need a lot of fuel to go out, collect a satellite, drop it into the upper atmosphere or move it somewhere safe, uh, and then go and get another one. And the current models for those garbage collection satellites are that they'll tow three pieces of trash and then they throw away the tow truck and they launch another tow truck. You can imagine that that gets a little price prohibitive. If you can refuel that tow truck, you can then do 10 or 100 uh, debris removal missions for, for your asset, maybe 1,000. All of a sudden, that cost structure gets a lot more favorable. So that's one application. Um, as we look out in the far future, and these, these assets are still costing uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars, and a small amount of fuel can extend the life, uh, that optionality to be able to extend the life if you put it up with a five-year design life and then your refresh is a bit delayed because the capital raising is slow or there's technical issues and no constellation has had a technology refresh in the time that has been planned ever. Everyone is always late. So to have the fuel to be able to extend your operations and maintain the satellites in phase, it's a huge uh, advantage, even if you never use it. 
So, uh, so just carrying a fueling port, which is a drop-in replacement, it's the same size, weight, cost uh, as the existing fueling ports. Um, carrying a fueling port that can be used for uh, for refueling in orbit is a is almost a no-brainer for uh, for these types of constellations, just to get the optionality. Um, where I think this will go in the future, once we have a mature uh, satellite servicing industry and people are able to upgrade their satellites by switching out the transponders um, and uh, maybe plugging on a new antenna or a, or a new solar array, maybe 3D printing an antenna, um, these types of things then lead you to want to maintain the piece of the satellite, which is still fully functional. Why would you throw away solar arrays that you had to purchase and get to orbit if you can keep the solar arrays and the structure and the thermal systems and the computer systems and all of those things that will cost you money and just upgrade the bit that's gone obsolete, which might be the transponder. And so I expect to see modular spacecraft, refuelable spacecraft in the future as, as the architectures evolve into that. Yes, I think that uh, everybody wants to see that. Making it so is a little bit harder. Um, now, when we talk about gas stations in orbit, um, your gas stations aren't static. They're moving. Um, what uh, orbits are you looking at and how many gas stations are you initially considering? Yeah, we looked at low Earth orbit and geostationary orbit, and that's where most of the satellites are. Um, so we'll put we'll put gas stations in the suburb where the customers are. Uh, I suppose I was uh, getting at more of the altitudes. Yeah. So um, changing altitude actually takes less fuel. It's less difficult than changing inclinations. So in low, low Earth orbit, we'll probably have tankers, um, you know, 98 degrees inclination, which is where the sun synchronous orbits are. A lot of the remote sensing satellites, uh, and then at sort of 90, 70, um, you know, 56 degrees, where there's there's other clusters of communications constellations and the like. Um, and then uh, we look at all the other things that define an orbit, the angle of the ascending node, uh, eccentricity, all these types of things. We've built up a big model about where we should put the tankers, how we should build out a network of tankers uh, over time. But it's basically, like I said, those four inclinations in low Earth orbit plus geostationary orbit, those are the places to start. And can you give us a sense of a timeline where you, you know, where do you see the business in five years? Yeah, our, uh, our big thing, we're selling to the satellite servicing companies. So our beachhead market is um, companies like Northrop Grumman doing life extension in geostationary orbit. Um, companies like uh, Astroscale talking about deorbiting and, and the garbage collection in low Earth orbit. The orbit transfer vehicles like Spaceflight and Momentus uh, inspection vehicles. That are, that are just uh, getting pictures of spacecraft, which is something that we've never had before for, for troubleshooting and insurance claims. Um, there's a number of different business models for satellite servicing. Those are our customers. Those tow trucks, if you like, are our customers. When we started OrbitFab, there were eight or nine companies doing that. There are now 45. That's a 500% increase in under three years. So we see that the technology has crossed the threshold, that the um, the perception in the market has crossed the threshold, and uh, you know, Northrop is Grumman is commercially operating the um, the MEV one in orbit and now has MEV two. So that's uh, that's demonstrably um, working there. So as those thresholds have been crossed. We are looking to service all of those to, to resupply all of those spacecraft. Um, things are looking really good. And, you know, their timelines are uh, demonstrations and operational capability over the next few years. So in five years, I expect that life extension will be commonplace. I expect that um, the deorbit tugs 
will be in place and start to be mandated by regulation to uh, to keep the debris levels low enough in orbit. Uh, I expect that orbital transfer vehicles will be very common, uh, distributing small spacecraft from bigger launch vehicles into their operational orbits. And, uh, and a lot of these will all need fuel. The things that I think will then be on the cusp will be the modularity that we talked about, being able to upgrade and repair satellites. And, uh, and that, I think, in, in five years is what everybody's going to be working on and investing in. Now, um, I have a couple of business questions, but uh, one more uh, about the fuel depots themselves. Um, considering w- how much work we're going to be uh, or how much exploration we're going to be doing around the moon, uh, are you looking at any fuel depots at uh, uh, Earth Moon Lagrange Point? We're looking at that. Um, I'm waiting to see more commercial activity towards the moon. At the moment, it's a lot of government activity, um, which may be good for uh, for the technology development. And NASA has invested in some cryogenic propellant storage technologies uh, recently that, that will help with that. Uh, and a lot of that is directed towards architectures around um extracting water and being able to refuel on the moon and store cryogenic propellants. Um, we're waiting to see how that evolves. Uh, we don't know what the um, the pace with the new administration, we're not sure what the pace of the Artemis program will look like and where the emphasis will be. And so for us, it behooves us to focus on where commercial customers are. And the commercial customers are in geostationary orbit and low Earth orbit right now. So that has to be our focus. Yes, that makes sense. Um, now, uh, in terms of the business itself, um, uh, how much money have you raised to date? Um, we've raised a few million dollars, and uh, and we have a few million dollars of government contracts. All right. Um, so Are it's, you actively it's the- looking for money? Yeah, so we're in the five to ten million range now. Uh, we'll probably raise a Series A um, sometime next year. Series A next year. Okay. How many people working with the company now? We've got a couple of dozen people working at the company. Right. We're actively hiring uh, engineers right now, having just made a great hire on the business development side with Adam Harris. Uh, now, how is COVID uh, affecting your hiring in terms of interfacing with your staff? Are there, are, 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 I mean, you're hiring, am I guessing, prom- uh, primarily engineers or uh, are, are you going to have a, you know, you, I mentioned in our pre-interview, you mentioned a new workspace. Um, so everybody's going to be working from home uh, for the time being? So most people are working from home through the coronavirus. The um, At the start of the year, um, when coronavirus first hit, it delayed our, um, our manufacturers and machine shops that we were relying on. Uh, we lost a month or so on the back of that. It delayed some of the government contracts getting put out, which lost us a couple of months. Um, but apart from that, we, we were actively hiring at the start of the year, and we thought that coronavirus would mean that some of the companies shut down and uh, or, or uh, downsized, and it would be easier to hire. We have not seen that at all. What we've seen is that the industry has powered through this uh, this crisis. The aerospace industry is doing great, and the war for talent is real. So, yeah, we're we're actively hiring engineers, we're hiring business development people. It's taken us longer than uh, than we thought it might to uh, to do that. But uh, equally, you know, there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of opportunities out there. So uh, we are extremely happy with the team. We've been very careful about uh, you know only hiring the best people. Um, so that's working for us. 
That's good. And I'm hearing uh, a lot of the same thing from from many, many other companies. So uh, people are still hiring, and and uh, which is great. Um, I think some people were a little worried uh, on how the uh, how COVID would affect the space sector, but it seems to be uh, like you say uh, at the moment powering through it. Um, well, Daniel, this is fascinating. Uh, we're going to keep uh, an eye on your company. Uh, we're looking forward to that launch next summer. And uh, after you have that launch and, and, you know, some time has gone by and you've done some testing, love to get you back on the show to, to talk about how things are going and, and what's next. Thanks, Mark. I, uh, I like podcasts, so uh, keep up the good work. And uh, I'd love to be back in a few months. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at the economy space to contact us or send us an email to podcast at spaceq.ca as always if you like what we do please support us on patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq